0: September 10th, 2009, welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Tianyi Mao, um, who is soon to be an assistant scientist at the Volum Institute, currently, um, though, at Janelia Farms Research Center in the lab of Carl Svoboda. Hi, Tianyi. Hi. And around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. Todd Troyer. Hello. Carlos Palladini. Hello. And me, I'm Salma Karashi. So I just, I wanted to start with just this, uh... I guess the overall question here that you address with your work is functional anatomy of neural circuits. Mm-hmm. So it all starts with anatomy. So I think it's interesting that up until probably the 60s, and Charlie will correct me, I'm sure, if, if I say anything stupid. Basically, everything we knew about the anatomy of of the brain was using Golgi method. And, um that, that's how we figured out the basic geometry of cells. Then we had the functional element come in with tracers and combined electrophysiology. Then we had you know, indicators, imaging of indicators. Now we have this huge, huge uh, advent of genetic tools. And so I wanted to get your perspective as a molecular biologist initially, I guess, um, about what sorts of opportunities this opens up for, for your problem, and what what are you mo- most excited about in terms of your research questions.
1: So let me get back to us. So first, um, when I went to a meeting, when I was a graduate student in Cosmo Harbor, the, the whole session um, is about three days. Every talk, the first slide or first couple of slides was one of the picture from Kaha. So at one point, one speaker says, it seems like these days it's inevitable we're going to have a picture from Kao's book before we can start addressing any question we're interested. But I think you're right, In later times people have tried, you know, use tracers. A lot of uh, real anatomical tracing has happened um, in the past Years And then a lot of information we get out from anatomy. Personally, I'm a big fan of the traditional anatomy tools. I think that lays out a very good foundation for what we can do now. But as uh, Salma mentioned, these new tools, so-called optogenetics or even the surrounding areas, a lot of molecular tools tied in with this. Different Queen lines, like the Allen Brain Institute, were casting this huge database on insight revitalization, how this together with the sensor tools, with the fluorescence protein tools, combo together are gonna help us to do a functional anatomy. And this is where personally I was extremely excited at the time I entered this field as a molecular biology tra- by bio training. I think the opportunity for me is that I can use this tool to really perturb the system and look at output at the behavior. So that's the initial motivation of doing this whole project. That's what I just talked about in this talk, which is looking at a circuit diagram between sensor and motor cortices. I combined a lot of traditional methods together with these methods. For example, channel rhodopsin, how rhodopsin, the way of how we perturb the system, we can use those things as a tool to manipulate it. But we also need tools to monitor in the system. So there's a second part of the project. We didn't talk about in my talk is using genetic encoded um, sensors, for example, calcium sensors or PKA sensors, whatever the readout or the interest we have. So we'll
0: get to well, yeah, we'll get to the specifics of your study, I guess, in a bit. But so, what is it? Um, So it seems like in order, how feasible is it that we'll someday have a complete functionally relevant circuit circuit model of the brain? It just seems like everything, it's not enough to know the geometry. In order to understand computationally what's going on, we need to know what connection cells make, where the connections are coming from. We have to know the subcellular connectivity, um, the relative synaptic strengths. I mean, and, and all of this changes over time. It's all plastic, completely plastic. So what does it mean to have a functionally relevant circuit model of the brain? Like I, I guess I never, I don't know. Does I, else really are you going yeah. to
2: let her get away with saying that everything
1: is plastic? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the, if you ask me how feasible it is this, I'm always on the optimistic side because we see what the new tools can bring us to address, you know, old questions. But as Shari said, this plasticity thing, I'm not in the best position to answer guess, this question.
0: <laughs> I guess it's a, it's a silly question, but I guess how well do you have to know a circuit to call it done? I mean, it's, it's sort of like where do you stop?
1: Well, for example, there are a large group of people now is doing EM reconstruction, right? You basically, this one by one by one millimeters of brain, and you will use the year method to systematically reconstruct the whole volume. You can look at all the connection you're using. You need a lot of mathematician afterwards to data mining this. C. elegance has been, been that's been the done. only well <laughs> yeah. been done. Yeah. Um, what um, can I learn from this? So one of my colleague, Mitcha um, Chavlovsky who is. In big part of this uh, reconstructing of the striatum element. And then, uh, you know, Winfrey Dank is doing this reconstruction of the cortical areas using a scanning uh, EM together with the whole um, block reconstruction. I think those things gonna give you a tremendous information about the foundation of the circuit, how the things are really wired together, what are the basic properties. But again, if you look at the changes of the brain, you need to first have your baseline before you can look at what are the changes that bring to behavior or bring to the pathology conditions. If you don't have this baseline, baseline, you have nothing to compare to. So I think what those people are doing are incredibly valuable for our future understanding plasticity. I think that's the next step. So I think Just my you personal Touch view.
3: in, yeah. Your personal view, I think, is correct, because it really touches in to the EM not being just a separate technique from everything else, but as a foundation for everything else. And then genetics and virus work and even stereotactic surgeries and electrophysiology and different types of imaging when used all together is, is I think, where really a lot of the advances are going to come now. Yeah. So I don't think any specific technique is going to give us all the answers, but the people who have some proficiency at least in a number of them will be able to start putting pieces of the puzzle together to make yeah. a more coherent picture.
2: Absolutely. So someone was sort of asking about how big is the task. I think you were asking, how big is the task? So one time, uh, uh, way, way back in the, uh, a long time ago, actually, how long the Golgi <laughs> method was in <under laughs> use in the 1960s. It had fallen out of use, and there were other anatomical tracing methods that were being used during the interim, and then Golgi came back in the 70s. But when the electron microscope came back, the Golgi method came back, sort of as a problem. But anyway, that's just history. But at one time, people thought, well, if we just know how the nuclei are wired together, so if I know this nucleus goes to that one, and that one goes to this one, and this one goes to that one, then the problem is solved. And that seemed like a huge task, an almost undoable task. But at this point, we think... Well, that is mostly done. I mean, there are certainly some mm-hmm. obscure parts of the brain that haven't been done that way, but the big parts of the brain, we sort of know that, and we teach it in a an anatomy class, and it's almost a, a just a boring, almost a boring topic for students because it's so. Oh, I think that it's it, pretty
3: boring for the students. It it? <laughs> <'Cause>
2: <laughs> At least my students it was only almost boring to me <laughs> that the because it's too much of it is is known, and because it doesn't really answer the questions that they want to answer. So, that seemed like an undoable task. It's sort of done, at this point. And now we look into the circuit, and we say, how many different components are there in the cortex? So, the cortex is a tough one. If we look into some other places, we look in the hippocampus, we look in the Mm -hmm. striatum, we see, well, there are really not that many different kinds of cells. And so, if we knew how the cells were wired up, and assuming that each member of this category is about the same as each other, then maybe this is doable. But then, but the, the question sense. is then. Maybe they won't be.
4: But the question is then. You you brought up plasticity as being well, the circus changes, so you wouldn't know. But there's also this recurring thing. Well, if we just mapped all the connections into all the cellularity, it's great. We can map all the neurons because they don't have that many. And then we map all the neurons. We learn a lot of information, and we still don't know how yeah. they
2: work. How do they work together?
4: You, know, you do this the the yeah. you know, somatic gastric thing. Yeah. We, we know all the connections and all the channels and all the connections. Hey, we, we still don't know how they work. We still don't know how it
2: works. Actually, a lot of students I have somatic gastric ganglion. Uh,
4: but no, but that's different. So, I'm not saying that it's not valuable to know all this stuff. We will we will learn a ton of stuff. But it doesn't mean that you have
1: like, description.
4: like this knowledge, this foundation that you're kind of done and that you learn more. You know, so it's not a, there's no kind of state where you understand the whole circuit and then we understand it. it's, it's all complicated and wrapped up. Another
1: thing, um, Charlie mentioned that, you know, unlike cortical areas, cortical areas, have a lot of heterogeneity in terms of cell type, the stratum and other subcortical region will be less complicated. On the other hand, I think um on contrary point of view is that how do you know, see all the D1 neurons in stratum and D2 neurons in stratum, you use this to direct indirect the pathway, but how do you know that, you know, within the D1 positive cell, how many subgroups there are How can you really say that we now have a defined cell type that we know who is talking to who, right? What's the criteria you're going to use? Say we're done with the category of these cells. Even before, we are making our connections of this group and that group, but how can we define, you know, subgroups? What's the criteria we consider done? Is the individual cells a cell type or, you know, the stratum cells receive input from cortical cells or they receive input from um, thalamus cells. That's one criteria. And then you know your genetic markers will be another criteria. How can you say at one point we know maps all the cell types even within a nuclei? What's the point we stop? If, we, if every
2: cell is unique, then it is a daunting yes. Yeah. So if there isn't some kind of way to categorize cells, then we are in trouble.
1: Yeah.
2: So we've got to hope that at some level we'll find the elements of the As network they... and that those elements will be, will be some class of cells rather than each cell being a sure. unique sure. element yeah. in the network. But and uh, they c- it can't be strictly anatomically defined. It's got to be defined by some kind of functional similarity between the cells.
1: Maybe genetic is a good way of defining it because if you have a marker, you can always go back. Or if you have a mouse line that labeled, you can always go back to the same cell. With sort of physiological tool, you patch this animal, you find, you know, bursting cell, you have this animal. Decision-making cells, but if you do a recording of another animal, you cannot always go back to the same cells. Only when you have like a genetically defined cell population, you can always go back to the cell, same cell, saying that they have this common property. So the good thing about
2: gen, about expression of genes is that it's pretty stable. So one of the things that you like about genetic categories, I think, yeah. besides the fact that you can see them right. easily in the microscope is that cells don't switch what genes they right. express willy-nilly all the time. And that have, one of the things we really need is that if a cell is a member of class A, that it stays a member yes. of class A. Yes, you
1: can study that <laughs> okay. in all kinds of aspects and same group of cells. And...
0: Isn't there some worry, though, that if you get too deep into the genetic marker issue that you may lose your relevance across species? I mean, aren't there even studies now that are showing that particular types of pyramidal cells, characterized based on a bunch of different parameters, are now showing completely different expression profiles for various genetic markers?
1: That's a very good point. If you look through um, Allen Brain Institute, uh, you know, database or the Gene Set database, for example, I'm interested in la- looking at the layer five cell markers. If I can have that, uh, you know, I can have much better control specificity in a circular diagram i am just talked about in the talk, but if you look through that, there are tons of genes that they all express only in layer five, but you look at how much overlap between those populations. There are some, for example, ETV1 that marks more cells than another marker. As you said, what does this genetic marker mean? If this is the ETV1 positive cell, does it mean something functional or it's just purely a marker, a, a random marker? Um, as I mentioned, a good way is you can always come back to the same cell. The drawback, of course, is like you need to know what's this gene's function. And I also mentioned another way to define cell type is by looking at a projection pattern. If a cell projects to a stratum and they're collateral axons project to sensory or if the cells project to thalamus that by itself hopefully function a different unit how much overlap between anatomically defined population versus genetically defined population, I think we're just at the beginning to uh, figure it out because you can use the genetic defined cells looking at their projection pattern, how much overlap. If you back label from their target site, you will be able to see the overlap of the positive cell to your marker. Those going to be the way to, um, to, one way to look at whether our criteria are, are good enough or what's really a unit for circuit function. So those are, um, again, I'm optimistic about seeing people start figuring these things out.
2: So in your own work, you really, uh, sorry, I hope I wasn't interrupting that in the middle, but no, in your own work, you really take on a rough problem for cell types, and that is cortical pyramidal cells. Yes. So in, for example, in motor cortex in layer five, you talk about superficial and deep pyramidal cells and compare them, and of course, Superficial and deep primal cells are different from each other, that's well known. But in the layer 5 of the motor cortex, there's probably a lot of different cell types. So if we just go by where they project, their cells will go to the nucleus, to the thalamus, to the mesencephalic mm-hmm. or pontine reticular formations, to the vestibular system, and, you know, the sort of list goes on and on for the cortex. And all of those cells are primal cells that come from layer 5. And in the 70s, one of the things that we learned from the blossoming of retrograde tracing yes. that happened in those days is that different... They're, they're cortical cells tend to go to a small proportion of those total of targets. The, the amount of collateralization is not huge. And so each of those is in some sense a type. Yes. And, would, uh, but we don't really... We don't know how the many there are, yeah. And... Uh, and The uh, physiological literature has been crummy at telling them apart. Basically, the physiological literature is about the cortical pyramidal cell, and then the physiologists argue with each other. I say that they they fire slowly. I think they fire fast. And and they all think they're talking about the same cell, but probably they're not. Uh, So what is the... If you're going to work on the cortex, it seems to me you have to sort this out. It is uh, So, as somebody who works on the cortex, what's your what's your plan for sorting out that? How many of these types do you think
1: there are, and how should we sort I really don't have a good answer for that. Actually, there was a big meeting um, somewhere in Spain, in Cajas, Old House. A um, group of people stayed together, I think, in 2006, and trying to decide, okay, with cortical area, even just looking at the interneurons. There are this, this many different types that defined by genetic markers again, or um, you know their morphologies and tons of them. When people talk about interneuron, how can we categorize that? With the pyramidal neuron, that's even more of a problem, right? For example, there are five B cells. Just by visualization, their size are different. When you go in, you try to patch them. In my talk I, or my work, I mainly do patch on the the larger size of the cell in 5B, which those larger size cells don't exist in layer 6 or layer 5A. So I kind of sort of using that as the landmark of like, look, I'm in layer 5B now, I'm patching those cells. But by morphology, there are tons of cells around it. They just, by looking, they're different. So one thing i have uh, trying to do is like, again, combine with classic retrograde labeling. So I inject channel adoption at the sensory cortex and I record from motor cortex. Now I inject in the same animal retrograde beads in a potential target area and look at those cells that the bead positive versus bead negative are the same. For example, if I inject the thalamus, uh, those cells that project to thalamus look different than the cells that are going to project to random place. But this is going to be sort of like a survey type of thing. You never know. You probably tried nine different targets, but the tenth one is the, really the one that you're going to see the difference, right? So this thing will be... Goes on un- until you, you find a positive result, which is a difference you see from a random cell. In this case, we're lucky we see the S1 projecting neurons in M1 is different. Um, but even you can see in my plot that 5B cell received low input, there are two outliers. The question is are those outliers that are cell type that because they project somewhere different? you averaged out their effect in the, as a group statistically, but are those cells that's really are the cells that project in a particular area that's going to functionally be different? I think the way we're doing this right now, again, is by survey of the target area comboed with a double injection in the uh, input area. but. It's a very difficult, first of all, because subcortical injection of the beads, you have to prove that you don't have contamination from other area. And the second injection, the cortex, and it's a very low-efficient method. Although this method is already much robust than anything available, but to be able to find out each of the, the projection pattern gives you the cell type to prove that, you still need to uh, systematically <clears throat> survey through through the whole um, by anatomy method or it's the to,
2: you know for, that for pyramidal cells we still have to fall back on thirty year old technology <laughs> retrograde tracing uh, yeah. because there aren't the great, there are yeah. great genetic markers that, to show right. us the different kinds of cells. Yeah. Yet. people
3: are great working to have on a, it. A genetic marker of where they project to?
2: Yeah, so you wouldn't have to do those. To do all those yeah, the ones now. that went to red nucleus had some... They had some
3: protein that made them go to that. red nucleus. So
1: <laughs> that's it what uh, I it. think it those larges, for example, an, an INDS project like GeneSet, right, they are really not biased towards a particular biological question. They just generate a bunch of the animals. They systematically document where this animal labels the cell maybe by chance they're going to only label the cell that will project to red nucleus here you go we have a quilline this is what you're using so as a community i think those tools like alan bering institute is doing similar things that we are collaborating with them too that they have you know tens of lines they have done histology with those lines for example if i'm looking for a cortical corticostriatalite can look through the database trying to find something like that instead of doing it as the individual lab, you mm-hmm. know, different people are looking for different things, but as a database, you may find what you need.
4: Are so you, so those, those, those questions seem a lot more interesting biologically than the, the focus on can we name all the cell types? Because if you actually think back to a biologist, it's like asking, oh, we only care about getting all the species down. We don't care about families or groups or phyla or whatever. And do we care about genetic relationships? Genet- I think if you start combining techniques, the questions of whether gene categories are similar to physiological categories can be asked at all these levels, not the specific little, yeah. only the specific right. little cell types, but which comes together, all the different sets of the groups. I think there's a lot of well, focus think, on whether you get down to the thing yeah, or not.
3: You no, know, but I, not. I think that's 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 the point, right? They're, they're trying to find that one little thing that already gives you the answer for all the other levels. You know, is there is there a protein for only gabergic cells that project from striatum to globus pallidus? And so, and so can we use that marker to to a priori already know what cell we're going for when we record from one? For
4: yeah, but so you want to know what if, if, if you if each thing is is a, uh, you know unique, then you're not talking about how sim- is that cell similar to a gavotric cell that's projected somewhere else and which yeah. way is it similar? Because presumably the way that they're similar in some of these markers or genes, when you start to understand things, will get start to get back to function about how they're functionally similar and how they start to differentiate.
2: So you're you thinking that phylogeny of cell types. Which is a cool idea. I mean, it could be thought of really as cell lineage, mm-hmm. cells that come from a similar lineage. Like the inner neurons in the forebrain seem to be something like that. But in the past, people have thought about the kind of phylogeny of cell types that had nothing to do with their lineage, but just similarity of function. So neurons that looked about alike would work mm-hmm. about like, neurons that had the same transmitter would work about alike. Well, that's yeah. like modern biology, right? I mean, that's in some ways all these genetic
4: techniques are, are being applied to the to the phylogenetic tree. That people are arguing about uh, phenotypes versus genotypes and whether they give you the same tree. I mean, it's the same question, right? If you do by descriptive, if you just describe the anatomy of the phenotype by anatomy, are you getting the same functional things that you would get? I think
1: I don't know whether you guys agree that the final proof say what Carlos just said, you know, you find this little uh, group of cells, you have a genetic marker, they only project to stratum. Now the question is, can I just, for example, turn on this cell? An animal will do something particular. Or if I can predict from this result, can I turn off this group of cells? Animals will do the behavior I predicted to do. If so, then I think that's a good definition for like a eunuch or like a block of eunuch to that detailed of uh, the information that we know, what the markers there, are, we know their anatomical connections, we know what's their role in the behavior paradigm in sort of both gain of function and loss of function type of experiments. I think if we can construct the circuit all the way through particular behavior paradigms from sensory most way, like output, I would feel that's a good definition of the cell type and a circuit, that's what really a circuit means, you know, necessar- you know, necessary and sufficient components that will do what you expect, like, you know, you can use modeling to predict this. Is the animal doing what are you predicting them to do with the known number of cells, known number of uh, building blocks would be a good criteria. So you there's some
2: mapping between cell types and behavior It would... I mean, there's often been said to be mappings between genetics behavior, and between lots of things. Yeah. Behavior. So cell type and behavior yes. mapping might be more useful than thinking about single cells or or single
1: genes. Single. Yeah. Because what those genes really means, right? You have if you can put them in a context of uh, as a unit, as we're talking, what's the unit that's enough but, uh, to do certain things?
0: I just don't. I don't think it's gonna happen.
4: <laughs> so it would be great you're not gonna buy
0: it. I, 30 years from now you're on the record <laughs> yeah. I, just think, I, mean, I think that
4: the way that, that the brain and biological systems are organized there's so much redundancy in interactions uh, that the decomposition is not going to be a one to one thing right? sure. so that's what I mean it's the same kind of thing that I, I think that people run up against with mapping out the circuit and understanding the function it just doesn't happen that way it doesn't mean that understanding all those things is not going to be entirely, you know, incredibly valuable. I just don't think the answer is going to be the one-to-one thing at
1: the end. Yeah, I agree. It's not one-to-one, but um, the, to be your point,
0: if it was. Yeah, yeah,
1: to yeah. a point of redundancy, right? You sort of need that if this one unit breaks down and you can still roughly do what you're supposed to do. But you can identify this unit. You know what they do. That's uh, by itself. I think to solve this circuit problem that's, you know, you may find the unit that is redundant, which is fine, but uh, I agree that probably almost likely is not one-on-one. One example is if you, for example, there are a lot of um, um, neurons in the motor cortex or sensory cortex, we can transfect them Use, uh, for example, in utero electroporation, random methods. If you do, uh, looking at uh, shining blue lights on those cells and transfect with channel adoption, very few cells is enough to evoke whisker movement. So that says, what are the rest of the cells doing, right? Uh, again, this is the evidence suggests there is redundancy, but if you can narrow it to, you know, if one cell is one cell enough, uh, Michael Brett has done this um, um, <clears throat> micro-stimulation where by... Uh, stimulate one cell he can observe some whisker movement again this is very controversial it's the real you know whisking type of whisker movement or whatever it is but at least you can see that if not one cell very few cells can do a behavior Um, the rest of them so how this relationship but again if you can label this group cell you can activate them, you can knock them down to see what happened. Maybe like nothing happened, but if you can identify their role, sort of help us put back, even on a redundant map, what does this, each of the units tells you about their function?
2: No, it only takes one cell to actually do the behavior, but all the other's job is to decide whether it ought
1: to be done or not. <laughs> <laughs> or else you decide to not let, n- not let this right. behavior That's happen, right?
2: right. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I used to think about Stuff like a, a radio. If I if I took one transistor out of a radio mm-hmm. and the music was coming out, then I guess I could think, well, maybe that's the music transistor. But, but actually, almost any transistor you pull out of the radio will cause the music to quit coming out of it. And there really isn't a music transistor in there. And uh, I think Todd is worried that that brain may work more like a transistor radio that way. Now, the motor system and actually the sensory systems are expected to be kind of degenerate in that sense. I mean, because the, by the time you get to a motor neuron, or to a neuron in the motor cortex that injects to a motor neuron, um, the wiring has become simple. This thing goes to the motor neuron, the motor neuron goes to the muscle, and the muscle contracts. Yeah. And, and in the retina, you know, why is going to affect those, sounds, those neurons, but sound isn't... Uh, but in the, in the vast parts of the brain, there isn't any kind of degenerate mapping between sensory and motor stuff, or between behavior. I don't know. It's possible, I guess, that there's a... Uh, in the basal ganglia, there's a lot of discussion about action selection happening in the globus pallidus. And the basic idea is that there's some cell in the globus pallidus that when it fires, that means I scratch my head. And the next time it fires, I scratch my head again. Because it's selecting scratch your head against everything else. And if that turns out to be the way the bogus pelvis, pelvis works, I would be so surprised. I'm happy
1: to be on the record but I'm still about thirty years from now, it turns out <laughs> then have, that's fine with me. But that's the thing, if we now can do I can see this happen that if you okay, have a head scratching cells, how can we you record a cell, you know, Every time you stimulate hand scratching, how can we get why this cell is different from, you know, another cell just right there? Um, what are the ways you guys think, you know, we can narrow it down to, to really help us? You know, on a piece of paper, I can just draw this cell to this cell, this and this. That's why you scratch the head.
3: Yes. That's the classic grandmother cell, right? Yeah.
1: Then I did, so talk about scratching
4: your grandmother, not your
3: head.. Right?
4: Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. But that goes back to the question of whether you can understand things if you understand the circuit, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the implicit thing is there is there something about, can we trace where this neuron goes and, and, and does this and trace it out to the, to the behavior? Uh, and just trace the circuit out until it gets out to the effectors.
3: Sure. Yeah. Trace it in
4: and trace it out. Sure. Yeah. You know, every, exactly. I
3: mean, every neuron or at least every class of neurons must have a function. So they, they're doing something, but they are not have a function. You don't no, have not no right a function. function. Well, I, I mean, function in the uh, in the royal sense of the word. <laughs> <laughs> but they're they're doing something, and, right. and and just because we can't define what it is, that doesn't mean of course you know, yeah. it's not but happening. You
2: could, be, you could decide if you're gonna if you're gonna have a studio and. You're video and audio and everything going through this and getting recorded and then you decide how am I going to lay out the components of my electronics, you could just decide to have a big bank of amplifiers and everything has to be amplified so why don't I just build a big bank of amplifiers and stuff would run through there yeah. and then people would come in and say what is that thing for and the answer really doesn't map onto any one thing that you yeah. do in that studio right? because it's just a bank of amplifiers. And to understand its function, you have to know how electronics works yeah. and, and that kind of stuff. So it could be that the brain is communicating with, with signals that we don't understand, and unless we know the, the the language that's being used, the operation being performed by a neuron just doesn't map onto the behavior. It maps onto this internal world mm-hmm. of those operations in some way. And so the you know
1: this big
2: part of the brain. It's
1: just a
3: bank
2: of amplifiers. It amplifies everything. Yeah, but that's a good Yeah, that's, <laughs> a,
1: that's a good. <laughs> this is kind of like a reverse engineering problem, right? You know, this thing can do an input output. You know, a bunch of you know, um, resistors. This is that how you just can put together doing one thing. Um, computer scientists, you know, they can if. You know, um, IBM or, you know, whoever, they produce one and kind of you have a chip. The other company can basically tease it out and, you know, reproduce this one. So the brain is, the reverse thing is like now you have a black box. How people can reverse engineer what's happened inside, right? I'm sure people like computational and mathematicians will have a good role when we have a lot of data in hand, try to figure out whether it's like Charlie said, there is a secret language or is there common rules to all of this? If there is simple common rules to all of this, if we can successfully reverse engineer this um, as a way to solve the problem.
0: Well, thank you so much. I think this is about as high level as we've been so far. This is great. Uh, Thanks for being with us, Tanyu. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop.